Well, my wife, Mina, and I, as mentioned, we've been married for 27 years, um, but some of you know we actually met in high school. Um, we went to high school here in the South Bay, and uh, not only does my wife know what I was like in high school, but I'm learning some of you knew what I was like in high school, um, so be gracious. But I was a junior in high school, and uh, Mina was a sophomore when we were both cast in the musical West Side Story, uh, which was being produced by our high school uh, drama department. Uh, we were actually dance partners in that musical. It's a great production. Uh, but the memories of those high school years, uh, both the highs and lows of high school life, uh, a lot of lows. There were my odd fashion choices and uh, fashion disasters, which were probably too many to count. Uh, there was this season where I was dressing um, in tie-dye hippie clothing uh, to high school, and that was also the season where I learned how to tap dance, so if you can imagine <laughs> a tap dancing hippie tie-dye clothing, um, that's how my, wife's, one of, how my wife reminds me of my high school years. And then there was my infamous rock band, which uh, played a total of three gigs. Uh, what we lacked in skill, we made up in enthusiasm. <laughs> and then there were all these questions I had um, in high school about my identity. Am I Korean? Am I American? Am I Korean-American? Uh, what does that all mean? Uh, if I'm Korean, then why are all my friends uh, non-Korean? If I'm an American, why are all my favorite foods Korean? It's very confusing. I still have questions about that, but now I just learned just eat and um, <laughs> leave the questions for later. Meany and I, we, um, we attended college together. Uh, we became Christians in college. We were baptized, began to serve in the local church, and um, we were uh, married soon after graduation. And now we have adult children of our own. Uh, and whenever I'm tempted to give the speech to my children that starts with the words, when I was your age, my wife reminds me that uh, you don't want to remind them of what you were like at their age. Uh, they're doing fine. And that's the downside of having a wife who knew you in high school. <laughs> I, I say all of that really to share this. Uh, we were all teenagers once. Paul Tripp puts it this way, the most helpful thing to remember is that your teenager is more like you than unlike you. Too often we have this view that teenagers are a separate class of people, as though they're aliens who drop from the sky, but there are very few struggles in the life of my teenager that I don't recognize in the life of my own heart as well. These are the types of questions that run through the hearts of teenagers. Do I look okay? What is right and what is wrong? What am I gonna do with my life? Will I be a success or a failure in life? Do people like me? Am I normal? Is God for real? Am I saved? And it's interesting that the questions that run through the hearts of teenagers are also the questions which run through the hearts of adults as well. We have more in common with teenagers than we might think at first. And so in order to minister to teenagers, we have to begin with ourselves. 
It's easy to see the sins in our teenagers' lives. It's harder to see the sins in our own lives. You see, when I argue with my child, that's called parenting. When my child argues with me, that's called rebellion. When I make strong decisions, it's called leadership. When my child makes strong decisions, it's called stubbornness. When I complain about life, it's called expressing my feelings and being authentic. When my child complains about life, it's called grumbling and complaining. Robert Jones writes in his work, Pursuing Peace in Relation to Ministering to Others, Jesus presents the proper order. You must start with you. Whose sins bother you more, your sins or the other person's? And so in our last session, we asked the question, who is a teenager? And in this session, we want to ask the question, who is a counselor? We want to answer this question so that you and I can prepare ourselves for this type of life-giving conversational ministry, which ministers hope and help to those in need. And so let me answer that question with three basic truths tonight. Truth number one, a counselor is a steward of God's word. A counselor is a steward of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 teaches this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Can I encourage you not to be intimidated by the problems of teenagers? There's nothing new that is under the sun. The heart of man is the same as it always has been since the days of Genesis chapter three. God's word addresses the issues of life. You and I, by the grace of God, are able to counsel. We are called to be simply stewards or servants of the word of God. But that doesn't mean we can engage in this ministry without proper training or proper preparation. Paul Tripp puts it this way, God transforms people's lives A people bring his word to others. The changes God produces in his people are directly connected to the ministry of the word. And I love C.H. Spurgeon's comments on the Bible. He says, open the door and let the lion out. He will take care of himself. The way to meet infidelity is to spread the Bible. The answer to every objection against the Bible is the Bible. So it's an identity question for ourselves. We are fundamentally servants of the Bible. The power is not in us, the power is in the scripture which we minister. Joshua 1 verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. And I mentioned the example of Ezra in Ezra chapter 7 verse 10, for Ezra has set his heart 
to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This was the commitment of the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. Have you ever noticed when you talk to your teenager that you don't always have time to prepare for the conversation? I would love sometimes to say, when in the middle of a conversation with my teen, that just time out, can you give dad two hours to study and I'll go study this issue and then I'll come back and I'll we'll talk about it again, but life happens and you don't always have time to prepare in that way. In conversational ministry, the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. And if your heart is filled with the life-giving and abiding word of God, then when life squeezes your heart, what is gonna come out of your mouth are the beautiful truths of God's word. But if what's in your heart is anger and pride and self-righteousness or a judgmental and grumbling spirit, then that is gonna express itself in what you say to your teenager. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now wouldn't you love to be counseled by someone like that? Wouldn't you love to be counseled by someone who has no malice, who has put away all deceit, who has put away all hypocrisy and envy and slander, and someone who is just on a daily, continual basis being fed by the truths of the word of God and tasting and seeing from the word that the Lord is good? I mean, if you had the privilege of being counseled by someone like that, wouldn't that awaken in your own heart a desire to get into God's word for yourself? Because you're seeing this person who's just feeding on the life-giving truths of the word of God. There was a man in my former church, an older saint, a godly man who walked with the Lord for years. And every time I saw him, I mean, he didn't even ask permission. He just grabbed me and says, Dan, I got a word for you. And he would just share with me something that he had read that morning in his devotions. Nothing long, just a quick word. I remember him sharing with me from Isaiah chapter 40. Dan, I got a word for you. Yet those who wait on the Lord will gain you strength. And he always ended the conversation by saying, a big smile on his face and saying, isn't that good? God bless you. And then that was the end of the conversation. Always quick, but it was consistent. It was always something he was excited about that day from feeding on the word of God that morning. And I had enough of those conversations with this godly man to know that he, he was feeding himself on the word of God. And he was finding in the word that the Lord is good. May God make us counselors to our teenagers who are feeding on the word of God in this way. Think about the potential if your 
teenager, how would the life of your teenager be changed if your teenager had in his or her own heart a desire to get into the word of God themselves? And how will we encourage them to have that desire to get into God's word if we do not have that desire in our own lives to feed on the word ourselves? This is why Spurgeon said, oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. It is blessed to eat into the very soul of the Bible until at last you come to talk in scriptural language and your very style is fashioned upon scripture models and what is better still, your spirit is flavored with the words of the Lord. I don't know if your relationship with your teenager is one filled with joy and fulfillment or one that is filled with struggle and difficulty. I do know this, the constant thing that we can say of each of our teenagers is that their greatest need is to know and to be convicted by the word of God. They need God's word. And our prayer is that God would awaken in their own heart that not out of being, not a mere duty, because the spirit has given them a desire to get into God's word for themselves, that they themselves would feed on the word of God. For those who are ministering to a teenager who are, who's rebellious or a teenager who's, struggling to submit under authority. I wanna encourage you tonight to do as much as possible in your own heart and in your own conversations to make the issue about the teenager's rebellion against God's word, not the issue being the teenager's rebellion against you. Ultimately, your teenager is rebelling against the word of God. And what you want to do is you want to make yourself a servant of the Lord and a servant of your teenager. You want to be one who is pleading for the Lord to do a work in your teenager's life, not for your sake, so that you can get the respect that you deserve, but for God's glory and for the good of your teenager. And I can also encourage you in this way that whatever struggle of life your teenager is going through, whatever struggle counseling issue that your teenager is dealing with. Make it your aim to be biblically trained in that area. Make it your goal to know what the word of God says about that particular issue. We mentioned the 10 common issues in counseling teenagers. You don't have to become an expert on all of them, but if your teenager is struggling with one of them, then you do want to know what the word of God has to say on that issue. And you want to study you wanna take classes, you wanna be trained in that issue so that when what comes out of your mouth when you talk to your teenager is God's perspective on that issue, not your perspective on that issue. Who is a counselor? A counselor is a steward of God's word. If you look at page two of your handouts, I'll move to truth number two, and that a counselor is a person whose heart has been prepared for ministry. A counselor is a person whose heart has been prepared for ministry. Much has been said about heart issues and the dynamics of the heart in counseling training. I won't repeat that here, but just briefly, the scriptures emphasize the importance of our hearts. Proverbs 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Matthew 12, verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. 
you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Harsh words are the overflow of proud and haughty hearts. Tender words are the overflow of a tender heart. 1 Peter 1 verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And 1 Peter 3 verse 8 says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. It's amazing how God has a way of tenderizing our hearts. Apart from the grace of God working in my life, my heart is stubborn, my heart is proud, my heart is arrogant, my heart is committed to the great aim of my own glory and my own goals. God has a way of breaking down proud and stubborn hearts and making them tender before him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Perhaps even this weekend, God has sovereignly ordained trials and disappointments in your life to humble you and to show you your need for his grace. Perhaps the refiner's fire is purifying your own heart this morning and taking your stubborn heart and making it tender so that he may mold you and make you into the likeness of Christ. Apparently, this work of sanctifying us and making us more like Jesus Christ cannot happen apart from various trials which come to test our faith. And may I say this with pastoral sensitivity and concern, but perhaps even this weekend you are dealing with the tremendous weight of having a teenager who is rebellious in your own life. Spurgeon said this, with the wisdom of shepherd, our children do not grieve us, give us most anxiety when they are infants, when we have them at school, when we can put them to bed and give them a good night's kiss. The heavy care comes afterwards, afterwards when they have broken through our control, when they are running alone and on their own account, when they are away from our home, when they are out of the reach of our rebuke, and do not now feel at once they did the power of our authority and hardly of our love. It is then to many parents the time of severe trial begins and doubtless many a gray head has been brought with sorrow to the grave by having to cry, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. Many a father and many a mother die murdered not with knife or poison 
but by unkind words and cruel deeds of their own children. Many and many a grave may well be watered by the tears of sons and daughters because they prematurely fill those graves by their ungrateful conduct. Perhaps even in the darkest seasons of parenting, we understand the cry of David weeping for his rebellious son Absalom. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. That's Samuel, 2 Samuel 18, verse 33. As Spurgeon says, our children may plunge us, our children may plunge the worst of sins, but they are our children still. They may scoff at our God, they may tear our heart to pieces with their wickedness, We cannot take complacency in them, but at the same time, we cannot unchild them nor erase their image from our hearts. We do earnestly remember them still and shall do so as long as these hearts of ours shall beat within our bosoms. If David says, it's a young man, Absalom safe, we have none of us had a son that has acted one half so badly as Absalom. What is God doing in these seasons when children rebel? Having walked with parents through seasons like this, having had numerous conversations with many tears, one of the things we know he is doing is he is working our own hearts. One of the things he is doing is he is bringing our own hearts to the place where we are tender and we are reliant upon him. And he is showing us our need for the good shepherd. And as I've counseled parents, our goal in counseling before changing our children is we want you to walk with the shepherd. We want you to experience his nearness and his grace and his goodness because it is when you are ministering from a place, the standpoint of spiritual strength, not spiritual weakness, and you are close and abiding with Christ. It is then when out of the overflow of your heart that you're gonna be able to minister and serve your rebellious child. Counselor must do this heart work to cultivate a tender heart. A counselor must Cultivate a quiet heart. As it says in Isaiah 30, verse 15, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And as Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. In this season of parenting, we face the temptation to have busy schedules and noisy hearts. And there's nothing wrong with having a busy schedule if you're cultivating and keeping a quiet heart before the Lord. Our hearts oftentimes look more like a raging storm in the ocean than the peaceful calm of a quiet lake in the beautiful morning of the mountains. David said on page three of your handout, Psalm 131 verse one, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth then forevermore. Here was David, the king of Israel, a great military leader, one with many duties and responsibilities. And yet David had in his heart made a not-to-do list, things he will not do. He will not concern himself with things that are too great and too wonderful for him. The language of acts that are great and marvelous is language that describe the acts of God. Psalm 71, verse 19, you have done great things, O God, who is like you. Psalm 86, verse 10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. David is saying in this text that I resolved that I will not try to be God. I will not concern myself with things that only he can do. As one commentator has well said, the difference between God and us is that God does not think that he is like us. Oftentimes the anxiety and the fear that arises in our hearts as we minister to teens is we are trying to accomplish things that only God can do. Only God can save, only God can sanctify, only God can protect and preserve and nourish and feed. Only God can awaken in a teenager's heart a true desire to love him and to live for his glory. Those are only things that God can do. We are called to be faithful. We are called to be servants and to faithfully steward our time and resources for the good of our children and for his glory. But we cannot change hearts. We cannot force our children to live for God. These are only things that the Lord can do. The anti-Psalm of one, Psalm 131 reads as follows, brilliantly expressed by David Powelson. It says, self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself and my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Noisy hearts lead to noisy conversations. And noisy conversations are rarely helpful in helping our children deal with their own heart issues. There are things that are just too great and too marvelous for us. One of the great ways that you can serve your teenager is to take time to prepare your heart before the Lord. Before you engage in conversation and address that issue or address that problem, quiet your heart before him. Be still and know that he is God. Take time to behold his sovereignty, his wisdom, his love. Understand that the Lord is on his throne. He does all things well. Understand that he is your heavenly father who loves and cares for you as his child, that he will work all things for your good and for his glory. Jerry Bridges has said, trust is not a passive state of mind. 
It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. God's plan and his ways of working out his plan are frequently beyond our ability to fathom and understand. We must learn to trust when we don't understand. And so we must cultivate quiet hearts. And then a counselor to teens must cultivate a trusting heart. And if I could just share my own heart with you for a moment, and this is just my perspective in walking through the parenting seasons. The hardest part for me personally in parenting my children has not been the actual day-to-day responsibilities of getting stuff done. I am by nature uh, a control freak. I know how to schedule things. I know how to prioritize things pretty good with my Google calendar. I know what my children should do, what they should wear. That's not the struggle for me. The hardest part for me personally in walking through the season of parenting teenagers is this season forces you to trust the Lord. And learning to trust the Lord has been a long and a difficult, uh, a painful process of sanctification in my own life. Because learning to trust the Lord means you release control. I've observed that a controlling parent can actually thrive in the early years of parenting when you control everything. You control schedule and activity and friends and diet and even what clothes the child will wear. But a controlling parent does not thrive in the older years. In fact, a controlling parent will smother and suffocate the relationship. Trusting God means we learn to release control. It means we learn, as David did, to say, there's only so much I can do and I need to trust God with the rest. It means that we learn to rest in his promises and his care and his faithfulness to the lives of our children as well as to our own lives. It means that we fulfill what is in our circle of responsibility and trust the Lord to do the rest. And it means that we learn to wait on the Lord for his purposes to ripen in the lives of our children in his time. I hate waiting. Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong. Let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. These are some of the hardest commands in the Bible for me personally. And yet, in the parenting relationship, God places us in the waiting room of life. We sow the seed, we pray, we shepherd, we serve. We give of ourselves. And then we wait to see what the Lord will do in the fruit of that ministry. We must learn to trust when we don't understand. And so counselors and teens must cultivate a tender heart, a quiet heart, a trusting heart, and then a humble heart. A little bit of overlap here, but a Humble heart acknowledges the limited sphere of influence a parent has over a child growing to adulthood. What influences determine how a child turns out? Well, there's parental training, to be sure. 
There's biblical teaching. There's the discipleship of the church. There's a child's own conscience. There's a child's educational influences. There's the desires of the child's heart. There's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And a humble heart acknowledges that we cannot control all of those influences. You see, determinism is the false idea that good shaping influences will automatically produce good children. But this false idea of determinism does not account for the fact that there are other influences at play in a child's life which a parent cannot control. And so the parent cannot control, but a parent can be an influence. And as Ted Tripp writes, in the final analysis, you must entrust your children to God. How they turn out will depend on more than what you have done in providing shaping influences. It will depend on the nature of their Godward commitment. There is a humility that God produces in each of our lives which places us looking to him to do what only he can do. You can overdo it. You can try to do too much. You can try to take the role of God in your child's life. And one of the evidences of this is what Paul Tripp calls conversational overkill. My children are well aware of um, my greatest hits lectures. Um, There's the don't be flaky lecture. There's the get a job lecture. There's the your great-grandfather fought communists in North Korea, so what's your excuse for not getting out of bed lecture? <laughs> There's, I've, I've got, you know, they can actually rehearse my lectures because they've heard it most likely too often and too long, and, and my children have been patient because uh, many of my lectures have been too long and too repeated. You can't overdo it. Even Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Even Jesus knew that his disciples couldn't handle everything at once. And so there was a restraint. So much to say, but where you are right now, you can only handle this much. We would be wise to understand that a freshman and a a sophomore can understand more than a freshman, a senior can understand more than a sophomore. And so we can say more, but we cannot say everything at once. We must be humble and understand and wait on the Lord's purposes. A humble heart realizes that you can only do so much on a given day I mean, you can just, you can make only so much progress. You have to be able to lay your head on the pillow and you have to be able to go to sleep, understanding that the Lord neither sleeps or slumbers, that he will work even when we are sleeping. Friends, if someone were to do an operation on your heart, wouldn't you want that surgeon to be prepared? For us to do heart work with others, Must not we prepare our own hearts for ministry? When our hearts are tender and quiet, trusting 
and humble. Now we are ready to engage in conversation. And so one of the best ways you can serve your own team each day is by taking time to prepare your own heart. Whether that's the morning or the evening or time in between, how would your conversations be different if you took time to prepare your own heart before the Lord and just wash your own heart with the beautiful truths of God's word and bring your heart to that place where now you're ready to engage. Don't rush into ministry without preparing your heart. So a counselor is a steward of God's word. A counselor is a person whose heart has been prepared for ministry. And truth number three, a counselor is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. A counselor is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. Now I'm stealing that straight from Paul Tripp's book. It's the best of description of biblical counseling that I can come across. Tripp writes, we must not offer people a system of redemption, a set of insights and principles. We offer people a redeemer. In his power, we find the hope and the help we need to defeat the most powerful enemies. Hope lies in the grace of the redeemer, the only real means of lasting change. Do you believe that a relationship with the Redeemer is the only real means of lasting change. Our goal in ministering to teenagers is not to modify their behavior. Our goal is to lead them to Redeemer. And so the hope of ministering to the next generation is the same hope we have for our generation. This is the common ground This is the unifying principle. This is what binds our generation together with a generation that comes after us. We are all in need of a great redeemer. And Jesus Christ, the son of God, being perfect, fully God, and being fully man, lived a perfect life in obedience to the law of God and died as a sacrifice for our sins, fully satisfying the wrath of God in our behalf and rising triumphantly from the grave. Because our great redeemer lives, there is hope for our generation. There is hope for our children's generation as well. There is hope for us as parents and there is hope for teenagers in our homes. If you and I can celebrate the central gospel truths of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, and not make some connection of those glorious truths to how we minister to teenagers, then we have not understood the full implications of the truths we confess and proclaim. We have a glorious redeemer who conquers sin and death In hell, we worship a glorious savior who is alive and who is risen and who is exalted to the right hand of the Father. On the basis of those truths, we have no right to look at our own lives with a sense of despair. And we have no right to look at the next generation with an attitude of hopelessness and condemnation. Jesus Christ, our great redeemer, is not at the right hand of the Father wringing his hands in worry because he doesn't know what to do with 
teenagers. He is at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things. As Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says, the Father has, he has raised him, that is Christ, from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In the end, ministry to teenagers is a gospel issue. Do we see our great need for a redeemer? And do we trust in a great redeemer who meets our every need? I was teaching a spiritual leadership class at my church, which about a dozen men in the class, uh, we were working through a biblical counseling case study. And the case study was concerning a young woman named Jill. This is uh, based on a real life counseling case that came through the biblical counseling center in Lafayette, Indiana. Jill's story is recounted in a book written by Steve Byers entitled Putting Your Past in His Place. And we were working through this biblical counseling case study, which is a real life story. Jill had ongoing battles with depression. She had been to many counselors over many years. Her biological parents were divorced when Jill was seven months old. Jill's biological mother married a man who eventually sexually abused Jill. The abuse began at age 10 and continued throughout her teenage years. When Jill tried to speak to her mother about this, both she and her stepfather claimed she was dreaming. Jill was eventually placed in a foster home, and after a period of time, she confided in her foster father about the abuse that had occurred. Charges were filed, and eventually Jill's stepfather was arrested and jailed. Within 30 days, Jill's biological mother posted bail for her husband. By then, Jill was so depressed that she attempted suicide. She was placed in a psychiatric hospital and eventually allowed to make a telephone call home. She learned that her mother was planning to take a vacation to Florida with her husband. Jill was outraged at that notion and said, you're taking the problem with you. Her mother's response was no, you are the problem. That's a real life story recorded in Steve Weyer's work. Jill's story of working through these issues is truly remarkable. It's a testimony of the grace of God. And if you want to read that story, you can get that book. But I asked the question to the men in the spiritual leadership class, what are the entry gates to Jill's life? And we're going to learn about entry gates tomorrow morning. An entry gate is not the objective problem that a counselee is facing. It is the counselee's subjective experience of that problem. So we use the illustration that a three-year-old loses his blanket. The objective problem is a lost blanket. That's not a good entry gate. You don't want to go to just tell that three-year-old, we'll just get a new blanket. Problem solved. You want to enter the person's world through the experience, subjective experience of that problem. What is the three-year-old experiencing as he is dealing with this lost blanket? Well, the three-year-old is experiencing insecurity, fear, anxiety, loss. 
That's the entry gate. And so I asked the men the question, what is the entry gate into Jill's life? The objective problem is she was abused. But was, what was her subjective experience of the problem? And we opened up that discussion and the men said this, and we wrote the words on the whiteboard that evening. The following words, betrayal, injustice, pain, abandonment, darkness, abuse, and being sinned against. Those were the words that the men said describe Jill's experience of walking through this suffering. That class happened to come the week right after Good Friday and Easter. We had just celebrated the cross and the resurrection of Jesus the previous weekend. So I asked the men this question, do any of the things that we have just listed on the board have any connection to any of the truths we just celebrated on Good Friday? Is there any connection at all between Jill's experience of what happened to her and what happened to Jesus at Calvary 2,000 years ago? And we all stared at the whiteboard. Betrayal, injustice, pain, abandonment, darkness, abuse, and being sinned against. And we all realized together that these were gospel themes. These were gospel issues. We didn't need to manufacture the relevance of the gospel to Jill's life situation. The gospel was relevant to Jill's situation. In fact, the very truths which were at the heart of the gospel, the fact that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus was abandoned, Jesus experienced spiritual darkness and was forsaken by his father. Those were all themes which described in some measure the betrayal and the pain that Jill had gone through. And we know that the darkness of Good Friday gives way to the dawn of resurrection on Easter. And the question is, do we believe that our Redeemer can minister to Jill? Do we see the connection between the life issues that people are walking through today and the gospel issues of Christ's life, death, and resurrection? And I submit to you that if we haven't seen the connections between the central truths of the gospel and what people are walking through today, then we have not understood the full implications of the gospel, and the application of the gospel to our lives today. Ernie Baker is a well-known pastor and a leader in the biblical counseling ministry movement. Um, and he posted this on a Good Friday. It was good for my soul to read. And I think it proved expresses the point. He said, crush humans, a crushed savior and care of souls. It is Good Friday and I'm reflecting on my savior whom I love dearly and also on this past week. All week I've been struck by the brokenness of my fellow humans and my own weakness. Who our savior is in relation to humans has never been more real. 
His ministry is the need of humans. A broken servant savior relates to the shattered condition of humans. My soul feels drained as I recuperate after having conversations throughout the week related to suicide, threats, and an actual suicide. Multiple broken marriages, sexual struggles included pedophilia, adultery, premarital sex, same-sex attraction, and cross-dressing. Along with substance abuse and its devastating impact on relationships, I have heard guilt, shame, anger, confusion, desperation, and exasperation. All of these feelings have been coupled with reckless, abusive words and actions. Tears are such a common occurrence that I joke with people that we buy stock in tissue companies. As I've endeavored to minister to souls using the scriptures, I've reminded my fellow sufferers that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He can relate to their pain, so learn to lament and take needs to him. I've ministered hope that he came to set captives free and bind up the brokenhearted. These are not empty promises devoid of power though. He actually has the power to do something about their situation as demonstrated by a supernatural power over nature, over diseases, over demons, and even death. But, and this sings with beauty for counseling, if he can resurrect the dead, can't he raise a dead marriage? Andrew Peterson captures our savior's relation the human condition well. Come broken and weary, come battered and bruised. My Jesus makes all things new. Come lost and abandoned, come blown by the wind, he'll bring you back home again. Come frozen with pain, come burning with guilt. My Jesus, he loves you still, he loves you still. The world was good, the world has fallen. The world will be redeemed. Oh, hold on to the promise. The stories are true that Jesus makes all things new. What do you need to do? See his beauty and turn from your way. Confess your need of someone who paid for your sin. Become a follower of him and see that he is the one who says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. He can relate and has done something about your brokenness. Turn to wonderful, merciful Savior. On this Good Friday, I am awed by our Savior's relevance to the human condition. That's the point. All that people are walking through today and all of our, the struggles that our teenagers are walking through today we must be awed by the Savior's relevance to their condition. You and I have the privilege of being instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We are the body of Christ. We are so intimately linked with him in vital union that he is in us and we are in Christ. And we must see the connection of the truths of the gospel to what we do in conversational ministry. As Heath Lambert has said, well, if you know of a way to help people with their problems without talking about Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And that is why the best thing that you and I can do for our teenagers is not to make our teenagers the center of our lives. 
Do you want to love your team more? Need him less. Allow Christ to be your all-consuming vision. Allow Christ to satisfy your soul so you can minister out of a place of strength and not weakness. One of the TV shows that Mina and I used to watch from time to time is uh, the TV show, uh, This Is Us. I don't know if any of you ever watched that show. Um, I think it's off the airwaves now. And, um, but I wish I had watched it before I took biblical counseling training. Uh, the training kind of ruined it for me. I didn't make a very good viewing companion because um, I'd say to my wife right before the show, I wonder what counseling issue we're going to see today. And um, I would just see biblical, the principles of biblical counseling as we would watch the show. There's heat and heart, there's root and fruit, there's the dynamic heart expressing itself in certain behavior. And um, as I mentioned in some of my biblical counseling classes, I believe that show is an illustration of when you idolize the family, you destroy the family. I mean, everything, I know it's just a show, but everything means too much. Someone goes to eat an apple, there's a flashback to 20 years ago when somebody ate an apple. <laughs> and they flash back to 20 years from now when some, they're eating another apple. I mean, everything is, is assigned ultimate meaning. And there's idolizing children and grandchildren and brothers and sisters and career and fathers and uncles. And I just, sometimes I just wish they would all repent and trust in Christ <laughs> and be satisfied with him. But it'd be a very short show, there'd be no drama but they're trying to get from one another things that they can never get one, from one another. They're trying to get ultimate meaning from family relationships and they can only find ultimate meaning in Christ. And the point is this, if you're looking for your teenager to give you meaning, fulfillment, success, and joy, if you're looking to your teenager to bring you satisfaction, identity, or happiness, you will crush your teen under the weight of all your expectations and desires. But if you worship Christ and you're satisfied in him alone, you can be a good servant to your team. When you realize that he indeed is enough, in the words of one of my favorite songs, all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. You satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough. A counselor is a steward of God's word, one whose heart is prepared for ministry. A counselor is an instrument in the Redeemer's hands. And tonight we've looked at the question, who is a teenager and who is a counselor? And you might be asking the question after tonight's teaching, how do we actually have these conversations with teenagers? How do we practically do it? What are the methods that make for an effective conversation? And to answer that question, I hope you will join us tomorrow morning when we look at the question, how do we counsel? Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, the, the glory and the beauty of Christ. And thank you that we have the privilege of being instruments in his hands. We pray that Lord, you would help us to prepare our own hearts for ministry that your word would be living and we would be feeding our souls on your word 
and that we would be living for your glory. And out of the overflow of our hearts worshiping Christ, that we would effectively be servants to the teenagers in our lives. We commit this to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.